Welcome, everybody, to uh, Drink While You Think. Today, we are going to be talking to one of my people in my favorite profession, the banking profession. So we're going to see if we can find a banker who gets it. I know everybody's skeptical, but that's what we're trying to do today on Drink While You Think. I'm your host, Matthew. You can see that my better half is not here today. Instead, we've gone in search of a banker that understands accounting firms. And we believe we have we can end that search now. <clears throat> Shannon, tell everybody who you are. And more importantly, tell, tell us what you're drinking. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm Shannon Hay with Live Oak Bank. Um, I am drinking Wilmington Brewing Company's Beach Time because I am um, actually, it doesn't look as lovely today as it usually does, but I am, this is in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's the home of Live Oak Bank. And um, and so this is a local brewery and uh, it is, let's see, El, El Dorado and Mosaic Hops. It's a session IPA. Awesome, awesome. And uh, I'm drinking, um, sorry. That's all right. Blair's Breakfast Stout, also from Wilmington Brewery. Um, how do you know this brewery? Is this just one of your local favorites? So this is, yeah, they're a local family. They started, um, they were a home brewers at first, and they, um, they're they actually now a staple of Wilmington. Every restaurant you go into will have a Wilmington Brewery, Brewers on Selection, Wilmington Brewing on Selection. So one of you guys get a little taste of Wilmington. Um, yeah, it's, and, it is, uh, it's the best brewery. And if Kenji had been here, he would be drinking the Tropical Lightning India Pale Ale you sent. So that's a hell, yeah, of, a, it, that's a hell of a call out, like knowing which one of us do uh, which beers. I, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, that one's a staple, by the way, Matt. It's actually served in every single restaurant in Wilmington. Oh, really? That's every like the, single one. The standby. Yeah. That is the standby local brew. Yes, sir. Oh, that, that's like on the menu. And I'm going to yep. enjoy this in my uh, Live Oak Bank coaster uh, that you sent with this. Love it. Love it. I wish I had one. I don't have one. Mine's, mine's sweating as we speak. Oh, that's awesome. Could have kept one for myself. And, and I do this little plug for you. Today's sponsor of Drink While You Think is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is the premier bank of accountants everywhere. There they go. Very good. That, that's, that's, I love it. That's all, that's all I got for you. So that's pretty fun. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, but... Uh, so I just wanted to tell everybody how we met. So when we were, um, um, you know, like most accounting firms, we have niches, right? So all the bankers I know are great in their fields, right? Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, great for technology companies. Uh, Silvergate Bank, great for uh, crypto companies, right? Like they're great. But when you go in your uh, cloud accounting firm and you'd be like, I'm thinking about doing an acquisition, they start giggling and laughing at you like they don't know what to do to doing that. And uh, after we did our first acquisition, uh, we met you guys. And I think the first call we had, because we were trying to, we did it in the wrong order and you can tell us the better order to do it next time. But, uh, <laughs> no but, but we, we had bought the company and already done the deal. And then we need, we had a reason that we needed to refinance it from circumstances that had changed with the, the, the person that sold the business to us. And our first call, you were like, you you started rattling off the metrics you need and the diligence like for 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 the uh, accounting firm acquisition mm-hmm. and um like i think it was the first thing you said it was like what's revenue for poor employee um how many uh 1040s are they doing how many 1120s are they doing like and you're like man you're speaking speaking my language on the tax <laughs> side here yeah. so um i still think that if we had come to you before our first acquisition 
we would have done better due diligence. And it's like undersold on like how great of a partner's banks can be when they understand the space. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about like, like talk us through the first five or 10 items on your diligence list? Like if we're going to come and we're going to be like, Hey, I'm starting due diligence on this thing. Like sure. just give people a glimpse sure. into like some of the things, like what are the five most important things you're going to ask that are relevant to us? Yeah. So I think I'd better off if I start first with kind of, you know, letting everyone know specifically what I do. I only all day, every day and my team finance accounting and tax practices, right? So we're not, and I say this very frequently, we're not looking at a car wash one moment, a restaurant the next, and then turning to an accounting firm and trying to understand um, the semantics, the details of the financials, et cetera. Um, Because we live and breathe in that space, we're, you know, we're able to recognize very quickly, um, you know, the, the inner workings of a deal and how important it, um, how important or risky it may be for you. Um, you know, as far as due diligence, it's, you know, for simple banking things, you know, go to cash flow, right? That's always the, the big one. Is there enough income to service the debt and, um, and support you as a buyer? Um, but then we dig deeper because we're so niche focused, industry focused that we, we drop down into, you know, the types of services that the firm offers, um, how old are the clients, um, how long is, you know, how long has the current owner operated it? Um, how long has the staff been there? Is, are there non-competes, restrictive covenants in place with the staff employment, employment agreements? Um, the list goes on and on and on. We do provide a business plan template. That um, that asks those questions and tries to help guide our buyers through the through the transaction process or through the due, due diligence process. Yeah, one of my lessons learned through this, and it should be it should have been intuitive. Um, I've looked at a bunch of the stats on the angel investing side, and totally separate uh, for angel investments. <laughs> You're talking mm-hmm. about even bigger deals and people that like the stats on the angel investing side are there's huge. Uh, return gains if you at least do 20 hours of diligence and then even better return gains after 40 hours of diligence. And that's just for small investments. You know, mm-hmm. you're talking about practice level investments here. One of the things that I wish I had done was kind of had your checklist going into my initial diligence. Like I, if we had partnered together, like yeah. going in, like it had been a huge yeah. benefit. So like, what would it, like, if you're thinking about buying an accounting practice, what be the sequence that you would recommend? Like I did it the wrong way. Like I'm coming to you on the back end and stuff like that. Sure. Like, sure. Talk about like the, the right sequence to do it. Cause I've already messed it yeah. up. Right. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, you know, the hard part is a lot of the practices that are listed. I always say the hard part, the, the great part about the industry more so than other industries that we focus on is uh, this industry has a ton of intermediaries like brokers that exist in the world. There's a large broker world. Um, and so a lot of times with, if you're looking at that type of listing, it's difficult to get to those stages until you can even give an agreement, right? Most brokers won't let you see the paper, see the details until you've given some sort of letter of intent or what your intent is, what you're willing to pay, you know, what willing, what portion you're willing to pay cash up front, what portion you're expecting to be a seller carry, um, you know, those times they want to know those details before they will, and they want to make sure you're qualified, right? They want to ensure that they're not wasting their seller's time, um, and, and give the, you know, give them the best qualified buyers possible. So you might get qualified a little bit before you ever get an opportunity to get exposed to sort of that due diligence. Um, you know, it's the big thing I, I think is first and foremost, you have to ask yourself, is this the type of business or type of practice I want to own? Right. So, um, 
you know, when I think you're thinking from a cuties level, it's, it's probably grander in scale, right? But if you're thinking from the individual, you know, first time buyer, or maybe I own a small firm and expanding to buy a second firm, it, it types of service, Riley, really should be driving your decision, right? Um, are you a personal tax preparer? You know, does, do, do you label yourself that? Or, or do you like to spend more time in the advisory bookkeeping, um, you know, that type of service, right? And so make sure first and foremost, it's, you know, you're barking up the right tree, I guess is the best way to say it. But Yeah, for sure. But then how do we not mess it up when we get to you? Like what point do we engage you in the process? And like, so how, I'm a, how does that feel? I, I would, yeah. So I'm always kind of, I have the, I have a lot of these conversations daily um, and, and customers ask me that frequently. And it's usually the letter of intent, right? That's sort of our trigger point as a bank to get involved, mostly because it's difficult to, to talk about, um, you know, the details or decisions on a deal until we know what you're willing to pay for it, right? Or what you're going to pay for it. And then as well, what the terms and the structure of the deal are, um, you know, as I said before, how much seller participation, uh, how much down payment, um, so on and so forth. That all that all kind of plays into it. But letter of intent, I would say, it really pre-letter of intent might be a good like preliminary conversation with the bank, just so you know that you have a bank that understands um, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and that they're going to support you in doing that. Um, yeah, and and I think I've come to realize that ninety plus percent of these deals get SBA backed, right? Like so, yeah. well, I think that's what yeah. it is. So, yeah. like you were really helpful for me in understanding like here's, here's how this impacts the letter of intent. Can you talk mm-hmm. about some of like the deal breakers? We talked about how long the other owner can stay on, like those. Sure. Kind of, okay, sure. What are some of the deal breakers in the LOI for people to start thinking about if they're thinking about this? Well, so it does vary from SBA lending to conventional lending, right? SBA lending definitely has um, certain parameters around it or, or what we call um, there's the SOP, right? So it's the uh, it's the operating procedure of the SBA and how how things have to you know kind of fit in this box, and so it doesn't really translate well to the accounting world, right? There's certain rules that that just really conflict with what a lot of the accounting world says um, a good transition looks like or um, you know a good deal looks like, and so. Um, what we've learned to do is sort of massage those variables to, to meet the SBA needs while meeting our clients' needs at the same time. But some of the big rules that kind of get hung up on is there's no earnout in SBA, right? That's that's faux pas, you know, verbiage. You can't, you cannot, you cannot, you're not even allowed to use the terminology earnout, whether it's in a letter of intent or, or in an asset purchase agreement. So every SBA lender is going to balk at the, at the terminology earnout. Now, however, um, we there is interpretation in in what um, what the SOP says, and, and and there are ways or ways to word things that might not that kind of work into that gray area or that non-black and white. And and I I like to refer to it as retention agreements or attrition clauses, right? So so we we get away from the earnout terminology, and then we start to talk about how what is a what is an allowable terminology that a lot that also gives the buyer the same tools that they would have if they were say seller financing or say they were doing you know mostly cash at closing and then having some terms to seller post post acquisition. Um, so we set we set up what we call retention agreements basically. And the SBA is really driven to today's value of the firm, right? And, and that's the way they operate on all their financing for all their businesses is that really any transaction greater than 250,000 requires a third party business evaluation. And then the SBA will only allow you to loan up to that that amount. Um, And so getting back to the retention, right, we always like to take a portion, set it aside, 
Um, we can do that in a number of ways, right? We can finance that and we can put that into an escrow. The seller can carry it and hold it back. Um, but then we, you know, we'd like to see you work towards the revenue, like a revenue benchmark. So you're buying a firm today, the revenues are a million dollars. You want that revenue benchmark to be a million dollars a year from now. And you want that escrow or that seller portion to be tied to that. But it can only adjust downward in the SBA's eyes because the SBA is only going to do things that are beneficial to you as a borrower, right? Or a buyer. Um, they're not really looking to help the seller too much on that side of the equation because we're establishing value. We're paying you for value on day one. We don't want to talk about future value. Future value belongs to the buyer. This is the way the SBA sees it. Yeah, that's that's an awesome one. And then how long the person could stay on is a big deal. Yeah. So the SBA does say um, that you cannot be that the that the seller cannot be in a key management role greater than 12 months from the date of acquisition. That's the exact terminology. So it's um, seller could not be in a key management role greater than 12 months from the date of acquisition. Well, what is that, right? What does key management mean? Really, it's um, receipt of proceeds, right? The SBA is trying to protect the borrower or buyer from receiving, you know, from the seller receiving more of their goodwill or more proceeds towards their goodwill post-transaction date. So they're trying to push the seller away to simply create that separation of goodwill um, and the separation of revenue, right? Um, so... We always, I always tend to say, and it's a little tougher on a podcast recording because I don't want this to be held against me at a later date, but that there's not really, you know, there's not really an employment police running around going, oh my gosh, is so-and-so working there? So you're a, you're the buyer, right? And you own the firm. It's really your decision as a business owner as to how you want to management and who you want to work there. It's really how you employ them, not who you employ, right? So Take them out of a revenue sharing model. Take them out of probably even a W two model, and and let's let's hire them as a ten ninety nine consultant if we want to keep them around for greater than a year, right? Um, that makes a ton of sense. So the, the, yeah. There's works around. There's workarounds, but the, you have to understand. I think the original purpose as to why they have it. Remember, the SBA wasn't built for accounting firms, right? It was built for all businesses, and so they're drawing these rules around probably problems they've had with businesses in the past in transitions, and they're and they're laying them into future deals. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense for, for what we were talking about. Um, so we talked a lot about the SBA. Like, what's your take on like if you're a firm owner? Like, should we care if it's SBA? Should we should we think more about conventional? What yeah. kind of what were the cost trade offs? Like, how should we sure. be thinking about as firm owners? Like. It's kind of a pipe dream to do conventional. Let's Not be real. really. No, Let's no. Be no. Real. Let's be real. Let's be real. So you got to think of it. I, I would think I'd think of it from the from the from the bank's perspective, right? It's um, we know that this is a goodwill transaction, right? We know that it's not really asset based. We quantify it in value based on the evaluation of that goodwill. Um, and so the SBA has sort of proven itself in the last two years, especially during COVID, why it's a valuable program. Um, you know, if you had an SBA 7A loan during the summer of 2019, you got six months of your payments paid for free by the federal government. I didn't say deferred. I didn't say waive. It was they were paid, physically paid by the federal government, principal and interest. So if you had a $5 million SBA 7A loan and your monthly payment was $60,000 a month, you got $300,000 in payment reductions from the SBA, right? That's a pretty big deal to a bank. When you're coming off the backside of a pandemic, it's like sort of hard to because they, the you know, the federal government wasn't reaching into conventional loans. Now that's just one point. Um, conventional terms are generally shorter, right? So they're going to be seven-year terms. Uh, now we do conventional. I, 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 you know, we are the nation's largest SBA lender, but we do, do we do 
do conventional deals. Um, it, a lot of times we do it as a supplement to SBA. So first 5 million will be SBA because that's the SBA lending limit. You know, the next the next 5 million can be conventional and we would certainly look to do that. But foundationally, what we're trying to do is lay down a relationship, protect ourselves, allow you enough runway to build your business, but then, you know, but create something that has a greater value conventionally and then allows you to move to that conventional side. So. We always think it, because we're the customer in this case, we have the opposite approach when our customers come to us that sure. you should be, you should do things immediately. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so like I, you should, I should come to you and you should give me a blank check tomorrow. Uh, yes, so that's how I, that's how I think, cause you know, we're responsible accountants and things like that. But yes. um, can you talk about reasonable timelines for people and like how much, if you go the SBA track, how long things will happen. And sure. if you go the other track, how long will it happen? Just because I think sure. there's some misconceptions about that. I think we have some unrealistic expectations of how fast you can get a deal done. Yeah. Yeah. I think that first and foremost, there's also some unrealistic. Um, well, there's a lot of negative connotations around the SBA. Right. And so whenever someone says SBA, it's like first blood of the firstborn is what people think. Right. And um and, and, and it, it can be a tumultuous loan process with the SBA. However, I would recommend that if you're going to work with the, you know, if you're going to work with the SBA, which if you're doing a goodwill acquisition, you likely are going to have to, that you choose a lender that, that does it frequently is a PLP lender, which is a preferred lending provider of the SBA. And, um, and you just has experience, overall experience. Uh, you know, believe it or not, a, large, a lot of the large banks don't have real SBA experience. They, um, you know, they, they're really well at servicing the retail side, the large commercial side, but when it comes to that small business niche, they, they just, they kind of, they struggle with themselves. Um, and so I would say it's really kind of who you choose as to how, how the process kind of work, you know, can work out for you. Um, you know, Live Oak Bank being the nation's largest, right? We have a lot of practice. We do it, we do it in and out. And so day in and day out. And so, you know, we say our goal is 45 days from start to finish, from application to close. That's our goal. Now, the average is 60, right? The average borrower will take 60 days, um, mostly because it, it, you fumble in certain portion with certain places in certain parts of the paperwork, whether it's life insurance or, you know, maybe it's even a lot of times the asset purchase agreement of a deal is, is the one big hang up that, you know, it's going back and forth between attorneys and never really given to the bank to have any say in, into it. And then finally, like a week before they want to close, oh, here's the asset purchase agreement, but it's never been reviewed by bank counsel, right? And then bank counsel gets a hold of it. And so that's another equation. But so, but again, start to finish, call me, you start your application process. Within two to three business days, we're issuing you a loan proposal or having, you know, we have questions. You sign the proposal, send it back. We get you into underwriting. The underwriting process is about a seven to 10 day, seven to 10 business day process. Then we issue a loan commitment once we have an approval, and then we move you into the closing process. And that's generally about a 30-day process from start to finish. So that's great. Yeah. That's really helpful context. I think what how does that is that relatively similar on the conventional side, or is there any big yeah. differences? No. Um, you know, the yeah, there's not really when you think about what are the what are the things that are hanging up in SBA loan, and a lot of times it's business valuations, appraisals, title reports lean searches, things that third-party things that are really out of everyone's control. Um, those are all requirements of conventional loan too, right? So we're going to want all that same due diligence on a conventional conventional side of the house. So I would say, you know, you might be able to squeeze it down because you, you know, there might be a, a couple variables and maybe, maybe you could get down to 30 days, but I've closed, I've closed both very quickly. And I've, and I've also had very long processes with both. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's really, 
you know, it's really not the a lot of people want to blame the bank, right? It's the bank, the bank's responsibility for my timeline of closing. I would say, you know, and not to be harsh, but but it's really the borrower's responsibility. You're given a checklist from the beginning of the things you have to provide and follow the list and check the boxes. And if you provide it all and put it back in the bank's lap, now you can blame the bank. But if you're still holding on to certain items that the bank's requesting, then, then the delay is not really on the bank, fairly. Hopefully that's fair. Yeah, that's that. I think that is fair, actually. Um, although I like to make fun of bakers all the time. I do too. Feel free. Feel free. We have beer. So. Oh, don't worry. I'll, 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 continue, <laughs> I'll continue to make fun of you. Uh, uh, the, the, um, the, the thing that always bothers me about bankers is I always feel like they never lend us money unless we don't need money. And then whenever we need money, they don't want to lend us money. So that, that, that's always my number one gripe about bankers. Well, well Matt, you, Matt, the, the bankers have the same joke. I, I, I say to, I just say to all my customers, I'm like, banks love to lend you money when you have it. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a lot more, but I would say it's not really, um, it's not really about what you have. It's about proving what, what, well, you do have to have some right down payment requirement. You want to have some liquidity as a backstop. You can't expect the bank to carry all your risk. Like you're all, you can, you're, you know, your down payments kind of your, you skin in the game, right? And then, and then they want to make sure that after the deal closes, that you have a little bit of wherewithal, right? Yeah. It can't be the bank's full responsibility to cover your wherewithal. And if you can prove those two variables, keep a little cash after after your down payment, then and you got good credit and you've got experience in the industry, it's not it's not as it's not as look, bad as look, it seems. Look at you defending your credit department. I, I, I know how you really. <laughs> well, I'm feel. a good banker. I'm a good banker. <laughs> I mean, credit departments do have mood changes. You have to admit, like the credit department uh, does go through mood swings. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's um, especially with a rising interest rate environment, um, you know, a volatile, volatile financial, um, you know, overall picture, you know, it's you got the inflation looming it. Yeah. I would say they're probably, they're probably a little, you know, they, they, they change with the, with, with the spirit of everything. Right. You should have seen them during COVID. Yeah. I have a question for you. I'm I because it feels like when I was going through some of the stuff that with you, like I, I know you're probably doing a bunch of retiring partners, you know, buying those those kind of people, those tend to be mm-hmm. older school practices. What what trends or changes are you seeing with these new cloud accounting practices? What challenges are people having since they may or may not be like traditional CPA firms or is there any anything that we need to be paying attention to for those of us that are like in cloud accounting firms versus traditional practices when we're thinking about this? Well, I would say, you know, if you allow me to pick the subject, I'm going to I'm just going to pick one that's, you know, near and dear to everyone, I think, right now. And that's just talent. Right. It's just there's such a high demand for talent um, in all sides of the industry. Um, in fact, I, I'm starting to see the I'm starting to see changes in why acquisitions are occurring. Right, like two or three years ago, acquisitions were occurring mostly for clients, um, mostly for billable hours, right? Mostly for revenue. Um, and now I'm starting to see buyers coming to the fold that are that are buying for talent, that are buying for technology. Um, you know, specifically in cloud accounting, no, I you know I do think that the acquisition market um, has has changed a little bit because you're starting to see um, um, firms being presented as as cloud firms that that. That just because they transitioned during COVID, they they're now a virtual accounting firm. Um, but I would say that every accounting firm is now a virtual accounting firm, mm-hmm. um, and so there, there's, there's there's there should be a clear delineation between um, 
you know, if you're a, if you're a fully nationwide accounting firm, uh, virtual, right. Then your clients shouldn't all be in Atlanta, right. They shouldn't all be in one particular geographical region. You right. should have clients everywhere. You should have staff everywhere. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would caution if you're in the market and you're looking to buy an account, you know, a cloud accounting firm that, you know, is it truly a cloud or a, a virtual accounting firm? Is there anything on the banking side we need to think about with that too? No. Um, I, you know, I would say that they seem to be valued at a higher level um, on the market and that there seems that there's a much higher demand for that type of firm, especially when you're talking about recurring revenue bookkeeping type businesses. There seems to be a lot of um, a lot more folks coming to the space that are non-accountants or yeah. say non-CPAs or yeah. so some of those, you know, some of those MBA type private equity type sponsor finance type are coming into the market um, because they recognize the scalability um, of the businesses and the recurring revenue models um, are very appealing to them. Um, so I would say that's that's shifting the market a little bit. You're starting to see different buyers that that aren't non-accountants coming to coming to the fold. That's really cool. Yeah, we've uh, yeah, Growth Lab Financial and System Six are two good examples of non yeah. non-accounts running yes. phenomenal practices. Right? Uh, that's I'm right. sure there's that's lots right. of them, but like those are the two yep. that pop in my head right away. Those guys well, are great. Chris Williams is one of my favorite people. So yeah. he's a great dude. He's a great dude. Great, great dude. Um, so um, yeah, where he was at the Counting Web. Uh, we were talking about oh, before man. we started recording. Yeah. Uh, I should have. I should have missed it. I'll be at Engage, have... though. We'll, we'll hang out on Engage. Yeah. Tell tell us a little about where you're going to be because you're all over the place. You were just at PASBA. I am. Yeah. Uh, you said uh, that was, where yeah. was that one this year? So that was in Scottsdale. They actually Scottsdale. have two. They have, yeah, they have two sessions. This was their technology and marketing session. Um, and it was at the Hyatt Resort in Scottsdale. Beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and then they're, they're, they have a fall session, too, that's in Orlando. Okay. In the in the fall, which is um, I think their management side of their, I, I, that's a great organization, professional accounting, professional association of small business accountants. Um, yeah, phenomenal great group. Think, great yeah. think tank. I mean, they just really love to share. Yeah, so. they're incredibly transparent group. Um, I found it incredibly invaluable when I was a part of it to yeah. to be in those yeah, groups. But we, yeah, but week after next, I'll be at Engage. Um, a couple weeks later, I'll be at the National Association of Tax Preparers in Vegas as well. We do Thomson Reuters Synergy. Uh, we did the IRS tax forums. That's just it found that it's a very difficult group to engage. Um, <laughs> well, it's like or find, you know, it's that's a you know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, you walk around it like a PASBA, for example. It's you ask someone, you know, do you do you know anybody buying or selling an accounting firm or what are your succession plans? And there's always a thoughtful response. It, at the tax forums, it tends to be, you know, why would I do that? And <laughs> And a lot of diet your desk mentality um, in, in that, uh, what I would say is the lower, you know, not every, not every uh, person, obviously, but it, there's a lot more of it there than yeah. I would say at a, at a more higher professional level. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so you're going to be at a bunch of the cup, upcoming conferences. The most one, as soon as yep. this thing, this episode will drop next week. So we'll be uh, like, it'll give people some notice. So if they listen to yeah. it over the weekend, then, yeah. then we'll be come in see Vegas, us. come see yeah. both of us. Like come yeah, see we'll me have and a, Kenji, well, come see Shannon. Yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah. You got to work on Matt for that special invitation though. So. Oh yeah. We, anybody coming, <laughs> everybody, any listener of this podcast is definitely invited to hanging out with us we, we have some night events going on so uh, cool. definitely ping us or shoot us a comment on social and uh, we'll tell you where we're going to be in the evenings at uh, at AICP Engage in Vegas we uh, it's our second year going and it's going to be a lot of fun uh, a couple Always. of 
never boring at least never um, boring um so that's uh what's the best way to get in touch with you man yeah um so i am on twitter i'm on text twitter at uh uh shannon hay at shannon at shannon hay lob i'm also uh shannon.hay at liveoak.bank and then i'm not scared to get my cell phone out to everyone and anyone so it's 614-648-9199 oh that's awesome that's a that, I told everybody that's a new kind of banker like that yeah. understands us I, and gets I answer, us. I answer, I answer my phone too. I answer my phone. I a rarity too. I know in the banking world, but I, I do I, my problem. I answer for unknowns, which drives Kenji batty. He thinks that's the silliest okay. thing ever. So, so I don't do the spam. I don't if it's if the if it's if it says me it's spam, spam now, it's I don't spam. do it. It's like but I'll answer the unknowns. Yeah. It hurts me to not answer it, but I don't. That's pretty funny. Well, we rate our beers, and I'm not going to pull up the thing. I'm going to make Kenji do this for his homework. You rate uh-huh. our beers anywhere from one to five in quarter point increments, with five being the best. And I'll start here. The Blair's version. The Blair Untapped. Yeah, that's where we put it. Blair's yeah. Breakfast Stout. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this is a four point two five, which is a high rating for me. So excellent, well excellent. done. Well, thank that's good. For, thank you. Yeah. For the well, choice. so Wilming, Wilmington Brewing, uh, you know, has their work cut out. Uh, you know, Tropical Lightning, the one that Kinchy has, is is probably just a little tiny bit better than this. And I'll still give this one four and a quarter with you, Matt. So that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Drink While You Think. Uh, appreciate yeah. uh, Live Oak sponsoring by sending us beers because that's My the pleasure. easiest sponsorship of all time. And we're looking, sure, well, it was. It really was. <laughs> we're looking forward to seeing you at uh, AICPNH in a couple of weeks, man. So, right, well, man. it's like like next week if you're listening to this podcast. That's so right. It's like, that's right. <laughs> it's like, Stop by and see me. I'll, I, I, we'll have a booth there. So, Thanks, everybody. Talk to thanks. you later.